welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. What are behavioral approaches and why don't they serve or support pathologically demand-avoidant children and teens or many other neurodivergent individuals? So today we're going to be talking about behavioral approaches in parenting, but you can generalize the logic that we're going to be talking about today to apply to any other sphere, like an educational sphere or a therapeutic sphere. But right now we're just gonna be talking about parenting. And what I wanna do is I wanna start with a story from this morning. And as you guys are watching me tell it, observe yourself without judgment when your trigger or activation starts. Okay, because I'm gonna come back to that because I know <laughs> exactly where you're gonna get triggered and why, and that's the purpose of this live. So what we're gonna do, we're gonna start with a story my story, explain what behavioral approaches actually are because I've been noticing a lot of questions in the comments and DMs that I've been getting. The reasons that behavioral approaches do not support a PDA kid with the logic of brain science. We're gonna break it down with examples and the areas where you're getting stuck. And then we're gonna talk about why it's so difficult to let go of behavioral approaches. And then we'll end with an invitation to experiment. So this morning was a typical morning. You know, we applied all the accommodations to support both my children to get out the door, which is a transition. And one of the accommodations is called a transition treat. So they each get to pick out a piece of candy in order to support them as they move from the house to the van. So that's a little bit of dopamine. Okay, so then they get in the van and they have their iPads, the service dogs there, and dad usually drives them to school. Today, my husband and I forgot the transition treat and the kids were getting onto the highway. They were fighting over an iPad because my older son, my PDA son, was watching something and wouldn't let the young, my younger son see what he was watching. And then they both realized that they hadn't had their transition treat. So both of them <laughs> started having panic attacks and my husband pulled over the van getting onto the highway and put his blinkers on, which is something that we do not as a consequence or punishment, but as a like, it's not safe for me to drive when you're screaming this loud, right? So this is something we do often. We just pull over. Right. So I, I was not in the car. So I got a phone call from my sister who works in the city next to us. And she's like, you know, I think I saw your van pulled over on the highway and I'm just calling to make sure everything's OK. I can turn around and help. And I was like, no, I'm at home. I bet the kids had a meltdown. Like, I'll call Jake, my husband and check in. So he confirmed what I'm explaining to you. So they lost their we, they didn't have their transition treat. They had this enormous meltdown. We're really Really mean to each other. And what did my husband do? In order to solve the problem, after he de-escalated, he added time to their route to go to school and he got them donut holes so that they would have a, a transition treat. I know as a parent five years ago, I would have had the following response. Wait a minute. So you give your kids candy before school and iPads 
in the van and then they have a huge meltdown and scream so much that your husband has to pull over and then you reward them with a donut hole? What type of parenting is that, right? And I know that that's your response because I used to have that response because of the behavioral logic I was operating <laughs> under. And I also know it's a place where you guys get stuck because the work I do with parents and also all the DMs and comments I see when I explain a story like this and people are like, that's terrible parenting. Okay, so what I want to talk about today is actually not like a parenting approach in terms of a philosophy, but a parenting approach based on the logic of your child's brain and nervous system, which is actually based in brain science and the literature on trauma and polyvagal theory. Okay, so just to be clear, I'm not advocating for a parenting approach. I'm trying to support you to get clarity around the logic of why things aren't working in the home and why you might be getting stuck with your PDA or de demand avoidant child. Okay, so when I started on my journey, a long time ago, as early as, you know, when I was starting to think about behavior and my child's behavior, you know, I started using reward sanction approaches with my son as early as like two, right? So these would range from rewarding him for doing things I liked and not necessarily a punishment, but like, you know, explaining to him why I didn't like something or taking something away in order to disincentivize him from bad behavior. Okay, so this was at a time when he still appeared fairly typical, except for the fact that he could not play independently at all. Like he could not do anything without us sort of entertaining him. And as soon as we expected him to be playing on his own, even for two minutes, he would start to escalate, break things, scream, etc. So it was constant one-on-one -on -one engagement. Then when his brother was born, we couldn't constantly provide that one-on-one -on -one attention and things started to escalate. And so how did I respond? <laughs> I responded with even more behavioral approaches, which is maybe it's a natural response for you as a parent, but it's also what the pediatricians were telling me to do, right? They were saying things like, well, you need to be stricter, you need to be more consistent, you need to follow through, you need to extinguish this behavior, which I'm sure many of you have heard, especially if your child is an externalized expression of PDA and they have a fight flight response, which looks like defiance and opposition. Okay, so what did I do? I used timeouts and one, two, three magic, and I would actually do the one, two, three, and then I would carry him into a room and shut the door for one to two minutes. It was terrible. Like things were really escalating. He would scream. He would try and escape. It was an extremely intense response. He would turn off the light and then scream, I'm scared. And he was actually doing things that I thought at the time were making it worse. I didn't understand it. But in my mama heart, I was like, this is not okay. But because of the external conditioning and the way that I was treated as a mother, which I'm sure many of you identify with, I doubled down on what the experts told me to do because it wasn't working. And the response was, well, you need to do more of it and you need to do it better. I was also trying positive discipline, which was natural consequences, which is like, you know, if you forgot your jacket, 
then you have the natural consequence of being cold, which potentially for a neurotypical kid will teach them to remember their jacket. However, with a neurodivergent child, which at the time I didn't know, you know, there's all sorts of things here that are complicated. For example, the child gets cold, goes into fight or flight, not into their thinking brain. And so instead of teaching they're here in their limbic system and having a fight-flight response, and they're cold. Or they don't recognize, due to interoception, that they're cold necessarily in the moment, so they're not inferring rationally like, oh, I need to go get a coat next time, right? It's just not appropriate for the brain wiring of many <laughs> neurodivergent children, even though positive discipline is heralded often as a more gentle approach to reward-sanctioned parenting. And, you know, people don't say reward-sanctioned parenting. This is just parenting in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> right? But we're going to break it down. Okay, this also includes sticker charts, rewards, positive reinforcements. So behavioral parenting is parenting in the United States and most of Western culture, which is just based on the logic that we need to reward or sanction our children into both learning and being a good human or reward and consequence them. So what does this mean? Incentives, disincentives. Carrots, sticks. It can be gentle, it can be extreme, but the logic is the same. So the reason I wanted to tell you my story is because I was not starting from a place of gentle parenting. I wasn't someone who was like attachment and gentle parenting. I was like survival parenting and trying to make my kids stop having meltdowns and screaming and hitting and all the things, okay? So there is no judgment that's going to come from me. I also know where you are if you're here. <laughs> but today, the purpose of today is that I want to share with you all the wisdom I've gained, not just from working with parents, but also my own trial and error over years and the pain and trauma I caused myself and my child. So I want to shorten that timeline, make it less painful, give you the clarity you need to make decisions. So again, what is the logic of behavioral parenting? It is simply rewarding or sanctioning behavior for two purposes, in order to get the child not to do something or to do something or to teach them something. And it's premised on the assumption that your child is in the frontal lobe of their brain, the frontal lobe, the thinking part, where empathy can be accessed, where rational thought can be accessed, where cause and effect, sequencing, all the things. Whereas what the reason, the primary reason that this doesn't work for PDA children and many neurodivergent children is because often they are operating from the limbic system, which is the survival brain, where you can't actually process rational thought, okay? So there's a specific reason for PDA kids that's not just neurodivergent kids because some neurodivergent kids who aren't PDA, it's like they might have a trauma response to a sensory experience, which is going to put them here, right? So that's the root cause. But what's unique about PDA brains and children and teens is the following. There are two root causes that activate the survival response. One is the perception that there's a loss of autonomy meaning they don't have freedom and choice. And two, the perception that they're not equal to you, a teacher, a sibling, a situation. Okay, so that actually sets off the nervous system and tells the body, hey, you're going to die, respond. 
So this is happening on a subconscious, autonomic level that the child teen doesn't have a conscious awareness of because that's not how your survival system is designed. It's designed to move faster than rational thought. So if a lion is confronting you, you're not like doing an Excel spreadsheet of like, what should I do in this situation? Your body is responding with fight flight so you can get away, fight the lion, run from the lion or freeze or collapse because lions don't eat dead prey. So again, it's really important to understand that this is autonomic, reflexive, subconsciously driven, and it's based on neuroception and coming from this part of the brain. Reminder, this is not where we learn. (laughs) This is also not where we change our behavior, okay? So let's just go through this with an example from my own life of all the different ways in just one scenario that I was applying the logic of behavioral parenting or just parenting in the US and why it didn't work, okay? Or why it actually drove my son into burnout and trauma. Okay, so for eating, let's just take a very common scenario of like your child is having trouble sitting at the table, they're distracted, they're complaining, they won't eat. Okay, this is many children. I did not know my child was PDA. So here are the different types of things. And we're going to break them down into, um, let's just call it carrots and sticks, because I think that's easier to remember. So let's start with sticks. So as I already mentioned, like when things got really extreme at the table, where he would run from the table or throw things or break things, I would put him in a timeout. What would happen? This is beyond just like, a loss of attachment or nervous system co-regulation. I was actually removing him from the table, loss of autonomy, putting him in a room, loss of autonomy. (laughs) Then I was holding him there, loss of autonomy, okay? In addition to that, that whole process was me in an authoritative position, putting myself above him, and it was activating his nervous system in an extreme way, not just a neurotypical way of like, you know, there's a loss of attachment, the child feels scared in the room. It was actually like survival response, survival response, survival response, okay? So what happened? His behavior got worse in those situations and it certainly didn't include him eating and sitting still and not screaming at the table. That's an extreme example. A lot of you are like, yeah, I would never do that. But let's break it down further because the logic is the same even if it's gentle, Okay, so let's say that you have a more gentle consequence, like, you know, you don't have to sit still or you don't have to be quiet at the table, but like you don't get dessert if you don't finish what's on your plate, okay? Which seems very logical to most of us because it's the way we were raised, it's how other kids are raised, etc. But even if it's logical, like you don't do the thing, you don't get the thing, it still activates the threat response for two reasons. Okay, you're putting yourself in the position of the decider. You get this, you don't get this. And there's a loss of an autonomy around what they can eat. So again, did not help him eat in any way and actually made it more prevalent that he was avoiding the healthy foods I was putting in front of him. This is where avoidance and the pathological demand avoidance comes from. But the root cause, remember, is the loss of autonomy and equality related to the neuroception and the nervous system. It's a nervous system disability. Okay, let's take positive consequences, which I also tried, which is like more gentle. Okay, if you don't eat what's on your plate, then you go hungry and we don't give you other food. Again, 
he could not make himself eat, whether it was sensory or the fact that I was demanding that he do it from a place of authority, loss of autonomy, loss of equality. So even if he in his rational brain was like, I really want to eat so that I'm not hungry, he could not access that because his nervous system was preventing him from doing so. And then I was activating him even more because he's feeling the internal loss of autonomy of hunger, okay? So again, maybe all of these sticks to you are very obvious, like I would never do that. Okay, good for you, that's fine, <laughs> no judgment. But, but now we need to get into the like even gentler and the carrots because this is where parents are like, why doesn't this work? Another gentle stick is explaining, right? The child's not eating. The child's not eating the healthy stuff. So let's explain. Like, you know, we got to eat this because you need to eat carrots because they'll help your eyes be strong. And have you ever seen a bunny with glasses? You know, even if it's gentle. But again, there's the energy of you trying to make them do the thing, which is perceived of a loss of equality and autonomy, which drives them further into the survival brain, making it much less likely that they'll eat. And there's a physiological response for my son that was always fight flight and it actually speeds up the metabolism and he doesn't feel hunger. So it's like multiple levels of this not working. Then we have carrots which seem innocuous or gentle, right? Of like, well, how could a how could a reward really set this off? Well, we experimented with like you can get more iPad time or you can get more dessert if you eat X. Again, set off the threat response. Why? Because I was the one deciding on the terms. I was the one deciding on if you do this, you get this. And I was in the position of authority, not equal, set off the threat response leads to avoidance. Okay, so this is just one tiny example of like one meal time that was repeated over and over and over again. And what happens when you repeatedly activate the nervous system to the point that it's constant, you're at risk of trauma. So again, I'm using my own experience because there's no judgment here. I just want to give you clarity. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the carrots because I saw a lot of comments and confusion about like, what do you mean by this? Okay, so carrots are often things like sticker charts. If you do this, you get a sticker. If you do this behavior, you get a token, right? And this also sets off the threat response of PDA children because of what I just explained, right? The root cause, what sets off the nervous system? A perceived loss of autonomy. You're the one deciding. <laughs> You're the one rewarding, you're determining when and if it happens, and a loss of equality to you, to the situation, to the sticker chart itself, to the token economy, which just means like, you know, in a classroom, for example, like if every time like you sit and you're quiet before I count to five, then, you know, we put a penny in the jar or you get a point. This is why your child, if they're PDA, really has a hard time with things like this in school, even if it's something like a fundraiser. Why? Because they're watching all the other kids get stickers or raising more money or being rewarded for their behavior and then it 
is perceived that they're below these other children. And even if they want to, their threat response is disabling them from doing so because the wanting comes from the frontal lobe, right? But they're constantly above every other kid, not only feeling bad about themselves, but also having nervous system activation. So this happened last week at my son's school where it was like rewards for doing the activity in a certain way and a certain timeline and other kids were getting rewarded and my son wasn't. And it doesn't matter how many times I rationally explained to him, like, it doesn't matter. We don't care about that, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter because it's not rational. It's not in his frontal lobe. It's in his survival brain. Okay. This was extremely difficult for him when he was in public school because everything was set up like this, including his behavior charts, even though he had a 504 for his nervous system disability. Okay. They had little like apps with eggs that hatched and like the teacher would put in like points for how well they behaved. And then all the kids knew like which eggs were hatching. And of course his wasn't hatching and it's just devastating and terrible in my opinion, my humble opinion. Okay. So we've gone from the consequences, the sanctions and the punishments, which many of you are like, yeah, I wouldn't do that or I'm not doing that anymore into the carrots which is a little tougher, right? Sticker charts, the token economies, the rewards, any type of competition. Then we get into diffusion, which is also related to this logic and the hardest thing for parents to do. And I get it. Diffusion is diffusing with your response, misbehavior or an aggression, a verbal aggression. It's not full on like de-escalating a meltdown, which can actually be easier for parents because they can see, oh, this is a panic attack. And it's different than if it's violent or dangerous, which is risk mitigation. What we're talking about is a kid saying, I hate you or blaming you for something you didn't do. Or this morning, I'll give you an example. You know, oh, where's your water bottle? Which direct question, even though it was to the ether, was probably activating for my son. He's like, it's up your button around the corner. What does a traditional or even not so traditional parent want to say? We don't talk like that in our home or that's not very nice. Why do you want to say that? Because we want to make sure the kid doesn't say it outside of the home, (laughs) right? Because we want them to succeed and not be ostracized from society starting with school, okay? But in the moment, what we have to remember is Even if they're not in their survival brain, they're going to go there if we do even the gentlest of corrections or explanations, because that's like a very gentle stick. So you can either say nothing, you can make it into a joke, and people don't like this, but there's a logic to it of like, you know, mom, you didn't put it in the right place. Like, let's say that was his response. And actually, like, it's his football water bottle and I have nothing to do with it. You know, I could ignore it or I could diffuse it and be like, yeah, I mean, where the heck did I put that water bottle? I think I must have put it like outside in the flower bed. Right. So I'm using humor as a way to diffuse. And yes, I'm deflecting some blame onto me. Why? Because I know how his brain works and If he's not equal to me or above me when he's activated, then it goes further into the survival brain. So with that logic, I can get him back into the thinking brain, which is where he can learn. Parents are very, I know all the responses, right? It's like, you're teaching him to be abusive. He's going to grow up to be this kind of man, all the things. But this is just to illustrate to you, this is a place that parents get stuck, right? Because they're still in the energy of behavioral approaches, 
They won't diffuse because they want to teach in the moment when the child is in the survival brain. And that's a choice. Like, I'm not a parenting philosopher. I'm just telling you how the brain works, okay? And what I do, okay, over time, what you're doing is you're creating new neural pathways back to the frontal lobe so that when they are regulated, you can actually connect and have rational conversations in a collaborative way. You're lowering the overall nervous system activation so they're not constantly on the edge of fight, flight, or at risk of trauma. And that disables them from basic needs and leaving the house and going to school and all the things. That's long-term. But let's talk about why this is so hard for all of us, okay? So even if you rationally and logically with your brain, understand what I'm saying, it will be hard to implement this. It will be hard in the moment to let it go of like the carrot and the stick. Why? Because not doing this goes against our fundamental understanding of human behavior. The assumptions that all of us are operating under, whether it's in a work setting, an educational setting, a therapeutic setting, um, a religious setting, (laughs) and there's no judgment, I'm just naming the thing, is we are responsible, whether we're the manager at work, whether we're a teacher in a school, whether we're a parent of a child, we are responsible to do two, for doing two things, to making sure that the child or the person does the right thing and is a good human and that they learn, okay? And so, you know, the good human thing is something we can parse apart. Some of it is like objectively, like we don't hit others. We don't swear at others. We don't steal like all of these values. And then some of the good human stuff is negotiable about like sitting still, right? Like that's a societal conditioning thing. And everyone's going to have their different viewpoints on that. And that's fine. But what we have to understand is that if we hold on to this logic and this assumption that unless we reward and sanction someone into being good and into learning, they won't do it. Then we're never going to be able to make the paradigm shift, okay? What we have to start grounding into if we want to make the paradigm shift is a potential different assumption about human behavior, which is, and this is why I've really had a resonance with Buddhism of like the underlying assumption is that a human is good at their root and at their core and it can never be corrupted. And it might be obscured because of their conditioning, because of their threat response going off all the time. But at at the root of my son, I don't have to teach him to be a good human. He is a good human. And it took me a long time to get there because all I saw was his threat response. And I'll tell you, like, I've had to do trauma work and EMDR and like somatic work and visualizations specifically about seeing my son as a demon. Okay, so this is, I'm not speaking from a place of like, you should do this power over. I'm telling you from my experience that like, this was a shift, a paradigm shift for me. Then the next part is like explicitly teaching through word sanctioning instead of modeling, strewing, and assuming that there's a drive that's internal to our children where they actually do want to learn, right? And that was a very hard shift for me as well, especially the two years that my son was in burnout where he didn't even have a special interest and couldn't engage and wouldn't leave the house, etc. I was like, how is he autodidactic and will learn, okay? So this is a leap of faith, especially if your starting point is the low point of your family's existence and your child's existence. And I know the other thing you're going to say is like, well, if we don't do behavioral approaches, then what do you you do? (laughs) 
Okay, so that's what I teach like in the Paradigm Shift program, which is a three month program that gives you lifetime access to like so many materials and like it's a whole process. So I can't really do it in one tile or one live. So I try and break it down for you of like, let's first be aware of the logic because if even if we learn all the accommodations, if we're still operating under the logic of like, I'm going to do these accommodations in order to get the child to do X, they're going to perceive the energy behind that and have the threat response. So it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. And I still sometimes revert back to the trying to teach in a moment of activation of saying, we don't talk like that in our house. And this does not mean there's no boundaries. Okay, that's a whole different topic. Boundaries are not the topic here. There are boundaries in my home. I'm talking about reward sanction logic in order to condition or teach a child to behave a certain way. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.